Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Live from Avenue Green, I'm Max Foster. And I'm Zane Asher, coming to you live from the New York Stock Exchange. And here is what you need to know. Great net Brexit, Prime Minister Boris Johnson's withdrawal bill faces the music. And a soft landing, SoftBank reportedly will take control of WeWork after its failed IPO attempt. And who fed the trolls? Facebook says a Kremlin-backed group is laying the groundwork to meddle in the 2020 election. It is Tuesday, and this is First Move. All right, welcome to what the British tabloids are calling Titanic Tuesday, a high-octane high-velocity effort by the Prime Minister to get his Brexit deal through Parliament by Thursday. Here, uh, U.S. stocks look set to open mixed in about half an hour or so from now. Good news on the trade front drove early optimism. Beijing said progress had been made in talks with the U.S. President Trump remarked Monday that the deal was coming along, quote, very well. And markets are also digesting a slew of mixed earnings. Good news from Procter & Gamble, Harley-Davidson and TD Ameritrade is offsetting bad news from familiar brands like McDonald's and Hasbro's uh, as well. Let's get you right to the drivers. Uh, we begin with Brexit. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's Brexit deal is facing a real test today. Lawmakers are set to vote on the government's withdrawal agreement from the European Union tonight. They're debating Mr. Johnson's plans right now in the House of Commons. Uh, Max Foster is following all the latest developments for us outside the House of Parliament in London. Max. That's right, Zane. Uh, today is the second reading of Boris Johnson's Brexit uh, deal, but it's the first time lawmakers are set to vote on it. The results will gauge support for the Prime Minister's deal in principle. In practice, it will only be the first hurdle, though, because the deal will have to go through another series of votes before it comes into law. Tonight, though, if Boris Johnson wins that vote, MPs will vote on the government's timetable for the rest of the week. And this is where lawmakers could derail Boris Johnson's plans to ram his Brexit deal through by October the 31st. And here's what his rallying call sounded like earlier on. Because if this House backs this legislation, if we ratify this new deal, which I believe is profoundly in the interest of our whole United Kingdom and our European friends, we can get Brexit done and move our country on. And we can de-escalate those no-deal preparations immediately and turn them off next week. 
and instead concentrate on the great enterprise of building a new relationship of the closest cooperation and friendship, as I said on Saturday, with our European neighbours. Well, he's, sp- he's still speaking, but Anna Stewart's outside 10 Downing Street, where he left uh, a bit earlier on. Uh, Anna, this is all about the numbers. He's been working very hard, hasn't he? He's been in negotiations overnight, his team, I think, with various MPs trying to get them over the line. Oh, does it really look as though you can get this one through this time? Well, I think, Max, it depends which vote we look at. If you look at the second reading of this uh, very large bill, 110 pages long, he's likely to get that one through today, not because necessarily he's got a majority of support in the Commons, we really don't know, but many MPs will want to see it get through the next stage so they can slap on a load of amendments, perhaps try and force the UK to remain in a customs union with the EU going forwards. uh, Lots of different amendments that the Prime Minister won't like, so likely to pass that one. The one that is perhaps more significant in many ways is the so-called programme motion. That will be voted on later tonight. And this is what the government's trying to do. He wants a programme motion to be voted through so it can sit in Parliament for 12 hours a day, uh, sit on weekends, hammer at home, fast-track this legislation so the UK does leave the EU at the end of October. This is the vote we are not sure Boris Johnson has the numbers on. If he doesn't win it, and it looks like Brexit cannot literally be achieved, the legislation doesn't have enough time to get through Parliament, the question is, does the Prime Minister then completely crash the bill entirely and try and move to a general election? Max? Um, Okay. and in terms of that timetable vote, just explain the importance of that, because um, if it doesn't get voted on in the sort of way that Boris Johnson wants it to be voted on tonight, actually delays completely um, lightly, isn't it? Yes, although the Prime Minister is arguing here that currently, although he has requested an, a Brexit extension from the EU as he had to by the Benat last weekend, the EU hasn't yet granted that extension. So at the moment, if they don't fast track this legislation, his argument is, well, at the moment we are leaving the EU without a deal at the end of October. So vote with me on this. Help. Let's get this through. Let's work on the legislation and fast track it. Of course, there is expectation also in the Commons that the, that the UK will get an extension from the EU and they want more time. They think the 31st of October is a sort of made up deadline that the Prime Minister wants to adhere to because he always said he would. But this is a big bill. Normally you get 21 sitting days in Parliament to go through an international treaty like this, not two to three days. They want more time. Max? OK, um, so Nick and Carol are with me. Um, Carol, you've been through these sorts of votes many times before, as have you, Nick. Um, What do you think is the most likely outcome today from the people you've spoken to, the backbenchers? Well, looking at the numbers that have voted on Saturday, the public declarations from MPs across all parties, I think it looks as if the Prime Minister should get the backing for his deal in principle. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the significance of that. Because if you think about those huge, thumping three defeats which Theresa May suffered as she tried to get her deal through, if the Prime Minister does win that vote in principle, that will be an enormously important symbolic boost to the Prime Minister's authority. But he knows that in order to try and leave, as he has sworn time and time again he will do on that October the 31st deadline, that he has to get MPs to agree to his programme motion, the timetable for getting this hugely complicated legislation through. He wants to get it through all its common stages on Thursday night. It then has to go to the Lords and comes back. 
And of course, the ratification process in Europe also has to be completed all in time for October the 31st. And there are suggestions coming from Downing Street sources that if MPs vote against that timetable motion tonight, that yes, the government could simply pull the bill entirely. And then we are into a somewhat uncharted territory mm. because, as Anna was mentioning, he's been forced to formally make that request for an extension to the EU whilst at the same time sending an accompanying letter mm. saying it's the last thing I actually yeah. want. And I think then we're back into hugely uncertain ter ter uh, territory about exactly what happens next. Um, Nick, um Obviously, Boris Johnson and his team, they are strategizing all the time. They are planning, obviously, for two different outcomes today. If he can't get the deal through, people are talking about a no deal being the only other option. But what do you understand from Downing Street sources? Well, there seems to be in the air a possibility that the Prime Minister would, if the uh, this this program motion the the, the, the short timetable for discussion uh, amendments and changes is deemed too short and doesn't pass then then yes it could be he could collapse this current process uh, and try to find a way to move to a general election now it's not in his own gift to give himself a general election he can't do that he needs a two-thirds majority support in parliament he needs the opposition uh, to be on side for that so th this is uh, going to be difficult for him but when we talk about strategy I think the general understanding and and the language of Boris Johnson since his first speech outside of Downing Street had so much detail in about you know an additional 20,000 police officers we're going to be providing additional funding to to re renew build new hospitals renew existing hospitals um, take care of social issues um, improve education he's been on an election narrative for a long time so to have a successful vote today and there is a sense that today we're in for the next five hours we're in very carefully charted territory we all feel comfortable we know what's happening we know there's going to be a vote up and down on this uh, we may not know the outcome but it's all normal it's after that that it changes that it potentially changes again so yes he would be have the success of this vote where Theresa May didn't Presuming, he, presuming the vote goes his way, and that would be very good to take forward into an election, particularly given he got a deal out of, out of Brussels Carol, when no one said he would. we've got all day to talk about this. <laughs> we've got weeks. Excellent. It could be months now. We don't know. We'll find out today about the delay, but uh, thank you both. There's a lot more to unfold here in Parliament in the coming hours. Um, I think he's still speaking, isn't he, Boris Johnson? Uh, so it's going to be a long session. We'll be here following all the votes and the developments, but Zane, for now, back to you. All right, Max, thank you so much. And we'll bring you some breaking news. According to sources cited by the Wall Street Journal, WeWork, that's the embattled co-working space operator, has secured a financial rescue package from SoftBank. I want to go straight now to uh, Claire Sebastian, who's joining us live now from New York. Uh, so, Claire, what more do we know about this rescue package from uh, SoftBank and how much control will they have of the company now? Yeah, Zane, uh, this is the key question. We knew that WeWork was uh, was weighing uh, reportedly two financing options. One from SoftBank, one a, a kind of a debt package that was being put together by JP Morgan. It is reported now by the Wall Street Journal that they have made the decision to go with SoftBank, which was already a key investor, already owned uh, almost a third of the company. But this is really interesting how this deal, according to the Wall Street Journal, will be structured. They say uh, that, that uh, you know, as a part of this, they will take control of the company, that they're, uh, they're 
their stake will go up. They will now be in control. But really interesting is how the future of Adam Newman will be affected by this. According to the Wall Street Journal, he will step down from the board. Don't forget, he was already sidelined uh, as CEO, but, but had a position as non-executive director uh, on the board. Uh, but according to the report, he will now step down. But in return, he's going to get about $1.7 billion uh, as part of this deal, about a billion of that from selling shares, another 500 million in, 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 a, in a credit line from SoftBank, $185 million consulting fee. It's unclear uh, what, what that will, will be, but all of that together means that he's pretty much walking away from this if this, deal, if this report is true, quids in. And meanwhile, it's very unclear, uh, Zane, what's going to happen to the, the more than 500 WeWork locations, even less clear what's going to happen to the company's 15,000 employees. And of course, SoftBank doesn't emerge uh, really profitable from all of this. Their investment uh, in the company, if this report is true, will now probably be more than the company is actually worth. So a lot of questions uh, are going to arise from this. And, and Claire, just walk us through what the last few months have entailed for WeWork, because this was supposed to be one of, if not the hottest uh, IPOs of the year. And then just a few months later, everything has come crashing down. Just walk us through what happened. Yeah, it's been a, a very rapid kind of unraveling. Basically, it all started uh, when the pre-IPO paperwork was filed. It really gave us a glimpse into the inner workings of this company, something that we hadn't really known about before. Uh, and it revealed a lot of skeletons uh, in the closet, Zane. Uh, most of all, that the, the company was really making a... a just wild losses. They lost almost $2 billion last year. On top of that, the business model uh, was seriously concerning to investors. The company has about $47 billion uh, of long-term lease obligations. And on the other side of that, they only have short-term commitments from their members, the people who occupy that space. So that mismatch uh, led to some serious concerns. They were burning through cash at a rate that, that led analysts and investors to worry about an imminent cash crunch as soon as that paperwork came out. And of course, the, the kind of unorthodox relationship of Adam Newman, the founder, and then CEO to the company, the fact that he had uh, you know, secured loans against his holding in the company. There were reports that he had leased out some of his own properties uh, to the company. There was a, His wife had the power uh, to help appoint his successor at that point. They amended some of that, the company, uh, as they tried to push forward this IPO, but it just wasn't enough. And now we end up in this situation. All right, Claire Sebastian, live for us there. Thank you so much. Um, and more details have emerged from Facebook about Russian interference in next year's U.S. presidential election. It says that Russian profiles linked to the Internet Research Agency are posing as groups in swing states on Instagram. Let's bring in Hadas Gold now. So Hadas, what more do we know? And just walk us through Facebook's specific process for trying to identify these Russian-linked accounts. Yeah, Zane, so Facebook announced yesterday that they took down around 50 accounts on Instagram, including one on Facebook. Combined, these accounts had around 250,000 followers. Now, Facebook said these accounts posed as Americans from all sides of the political debate. They had names like Michigan Black Community, Stop Trump, Bernie 2020 all posing as sort of politically active accounts. And they would, they would post these sort of memes around politics. And a lot of the memes, though, even if they were pro-Trump or pro-Bernie, a lot of these memes seem to be united in their opposition to Joe Biden. Of course, that's notable considering that Facebook is saying that the people behind these accounts are actually not Americans. They are actually Russians associated with the Internet Research uh, uh, with Internet Research Group in Russia. Of course, they became infamous uh, during their uh, attempts to do similar activities during the 2016 election. Of course, their activities were documented in congressional inquiries that were published 
uh, documenting just how far they went, how big of a business this was for the IRA. But it just goes to show you that what we saw in 2016, just because it's exposed, it's not stopping anytime soon. It is continuing into 2020. But the difference is now we're much more aware of it and the social media companies are much more aware of it. And the way that they are identifying them and taking them down are becoming more sophisticated. They're starting to partner more with some, some of these outside groups who digital kind of forensics who analyze these things. But it's a cat and mouse game. It's a constant game to try to catch these accounts, identify them and take them down. All right. Had us gold life for us there. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, so these are the stories uh, making headlines around the world. Russian President Vladimir Putin is meeting his Turkish counterpart, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, uh, in Sochi right now. The two are likely discussing a ceasefire in northern Syria, which is set to expire in just a few hours from now. We are expecting a statement from uh, both presidents. We'll, of course, bring it to you live as soon as that happens. Meantime, in Canada, Justin Trudeau's Liberal Party is expected to hold on to power, but as a minority government. He will have to form a partnership with at least one other party for a second term. Mr. Trudeau's campaign suffered after multiple photos of him wearing blackface uh, years ago emerged. He apologized, claiming he didn't realize at the time that what he was doing was racist. Japan's Emperor Naruto has officially proclaimed his enthronement. That's after his father abdicated the throne in May around 2,000 dignitaries from more than 180 countries attended a solemn centuries-old ceremony earlier in the Imperial Palace in Tokyo. The emperor says that he will pray for happiness and the people, of, of the people rather, and world peace as well. Okay, still to come here on First Move, Brexit in the skies. The president of Emirates Airlines weighs in on the process and why he feels that it's so disturbing and... Verizon enters the Magic Kingdom. The telecoms giant teams up with Disney, throwing another name into the streaming wars. You're watching CNN. All right, welcome back to First Move, everyone. I'm Zane Asher, coming to you live from here at the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, let's talk to you about what's happening in the Houses of Parliament right now in London. Boris Johnson's vision for Brexit is facing its very first real test. British lawmakers, you are looking at live pictures by the way, British lawmakers are set to vote on his withdrawal agreement with the European Union tonight. This is part of the Prime Minister's plan to ram through his legislation by October 31st. That is just over one week away. So, of course, the clock is ticking. With the urgency echoed by the pre president, rather, of Emirates Airline, Tim Clark. He's been speaking to our Julia Chastley, weighing in on the Brexit process and how he thinks the whole thing has gotten, in his words, pretty ugly. From a personal point of view, I think anybody involved or looking at this, um, it's, it's, for me, it's quite disturbing uh, because I see the British system of government, which is uh, highly aspirational in other parts of the world that I see, countries, entities within those countries aspiring to the British system of government. Um, they like what they see. They, they, they like the way the uh, laws are passed and enacted through the parliamentary process and sovereignty passing from the people to the to parliament to act on behalf of the people now what i see now is a challenge to that um, a disruption to that 
and how this will be resolved I don't know but it's it's the whole process over the last two or three years has been pretty ugly um, I'm not just I'm not going to say that that won't get resolved in the end but in the process of doing that it's quite disturbing and I think it's disturbing not just the people in the United Kingdom for all the reasons that we know but also it's causing a, a degree of instability in the minds of others and that, that affects confidence of investors it's in, it, it slows down uh, those very very important economic factors that push growth uh, are put into equilibrium at the same time as in, the, in this case the European economies in the German case has slowed considerably and not long ago we were talking about a recession in Germany and the political upheavals that are going on in Europe at the moment, the Catalonian uh, crisis, the various shifting governments within the various constituent parts, such as Italy, um, Austria recently, etc. So there is, a, there is a degree of uncertainty which isn't helped by Brexit. Do you think the UK leaves the EU on October 31st? That's a hugely difficult question, even though it's the 21st, it's in 10 days to go. I, I, I don't know. The chicanery that goes on in the British Parliament, and I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, but it is... It is you don't have enough fingers, no, quite frankly. No, there is that. But of course it's going to be a, a, a constitutional historian's uh, books are going to be written about this Plenty of them. Um, in the future. So whether I, I believe that there will be a Brexit. Whether it'll be on October the 31st, I'm not sure, but I believe that, that, that it will come. Um, and it will, it'll come in a manner, in my view, that eventually will be diluted to an extent that will be equally, will be re received well by all the various parties. Once we've been through the, the multi-layers, uh, multi-dimensional agendas that are working here, in the end, I think sense will prevail because I believe the the UK um, powers that be, entities, establishment, and the Europeans understand the fundamentals of all of this, and it is critical that the United Kingdom and Europe work together. Um, are, are, are bolted at the hip, not perhaps so much as they were in the past, but they just get on with the job. And I believe both the Europeans and the United Kingdom want this to happen. You say and suggest it will be a very soft form of Brexit, therefore. Is it even worth it to, to Brexit for the UK economy in that case? Or are we so far beyond asking the question of whether the deal's good or what kind of deal it looks like? Because we're mm. so desperate to enact Brexit that the, the, the benefits whether it's a good deal or not, have become irrelevant? Well, I, I'm, it depends what you define as soft Brexit, hard Brexit. These are terms that have been banded around for political purposes, etc. Uh, in my view, there, will, there is already a balance. There is already a middle road, which will probably satisfy the hard and the soft, whatever it may be. And because it is nearly there, I believe that in the end, sense will prevail. I can't say what will happen in the case of a general election, etc. Who will, who will, you know, I have my own views about that. I haven't got time to talk about those. But in the end, I think this is going to happen. Um, and it will be a result of judgments taken by both sides and I don't mean just the, just the people within the, the UK parliamentary process, but the Europeans themselves, a recognition that this cannot go on indefinitely. Mm. And if it is allowed to go on indefinitely, the destabilisation of both the European economies and the UK will be out there for so long. It's not a good place to be in. 
Um, equally, the Europeans need to get on with their jobs. The United Kingdom needs to get on with its job. And the Europeans really don't want to see any more countries taking a similar path because this would just be... So it's important that it's brought to an end. I believe it will be brought to an end. I believe we will be out of the United Kingdom, will be out of the uh, European Union, but not on such a hard basis that we are totally isolated and uh, without link. That was the president of Emirates Airlines speaking with our Julia Chatterley. They spoke a lot more than about a lot more than just Brexit, from the challenges of global growth to the troubles facing Boeing as well. All of that and more uh, tomorrow on First Move. Tonight's vote will likely move the pound right now. It is edging lower. It is trading around uh, 129 against the dollar. We'll be right back in just a couple of minutes with the opening bell. CNN breaking news. Okay, we've got some breaking news on Brexit for you because the process isn't working quite as uh, Boris Johnson had been hoping. It's a complex matter. Let's bring in Anna Stewart. She's in 10 Downing Street. You've been following it for us. Just explain the various votes today and how they how they, how they're developing effectively. So two key votes today. One is the second reading of the withdrawal agreement bill that's expected to go through and it essentially means that the bill can go through the next stage of the process which will involve probably loads of amendments being slapped on it. So not the end of the of the process by any means. The second vote, this is a, a crucial one we've been talking about this morning, Max, the programme motion. This is the government wanting to fast track this so it gets through Parliament, essentially through the House of Commons in two to three days. That's an incredibly short amount of time compared to the usual amount of time an international treaty would take. That's 21 sitting days. Now, in the last few minutes, the Prime Minister stood up and said that if Parliament does not agree to fast track this bill, he is going to pull it. Now, this is really a bit of a game changer. This will focus minds in Parliament, plenty of MPs who maybe were planning to vote against the programme motion, wanting more time to debate it, to consider it. Many will be concerned at this stage that if they want Brexit, perhaps they have to fall in line and vote with the government because otherwise this bill may get scrapped entirely and the Prime Minister wants to head straight for a general election. Max? Uh, in terms of... Um Jeremy Corbyn's point of view. He's currently speaking right now, isn't he? Uh, he's treading a careful tightrope here because he's got to uh, allow Brexit to happen. You know, that's what the referendum called for. But at the same time, he's very uncomfortable about leaving the customs union. It's been an incredibly difficult position for the opposition party. They've always said they want to deliver what the nation voted for, deliver Brexit. However, they would like to have a second referendum. They've dithered on that actually throughout the last... Uh, three and a half years, finding Labour's position has always been quite difficult. What will be very interesting is if the Prime Minister wants to call a general election because he feels that he cannot get his bill through Parliament uh, in the time frame he wants, will Labour support that call for a general election? If the EU grants the extension, we're still waiting to find out if that happens, then it will be very difficult for the Labour Party to not back a general election. They blocked it before, but they said they blocked 
Boris Johnson from having a general election in recent months because they wanted to ensure that no deal Brexit was taken off the table at the end of October. If that happens and the Prime Minister decides he can no longer go forward with his bill, then it would appear likely that we are going to head into a general election. Um, is this, uh, thank you, Anna. I've got Nick here. I mean, you've been following um, Boris Johnson's strategy throughout. It's quite hard to keep up with, isn't it? You never quite know whether he's just bluster or he's actually coming up with a firm threat and whether or not this is just a way of getting the deal through. Look, I think the government has a reasonably good handle on where they feel the figures are at. And there's, there was immediately huge pushback in Parliament last night. You know, this bill, 110 pages, was only given to MPs at quarter to eight last night. And as soon as it was given, MPs were standing up uh, in Parliament uh, talking, saying very clearly that they don't have enough time to go through it. So it's very clear there's been pushback on this timetable, the programme motion, already. So that clearly within Downing Street, the calculation is being made. If that doesn't pass, what are we going to do? And the strategy has always been there to prepare and be ready for a general election. That pushing for the possibility of a no-deal Brexit was always going to be a huge challenge. It was a negotiating strategy to a great degree with the European Union, with the British people, with Parliament as well, to get himself to this position, to open up the withdrawal agreement that couldn't be done, that was said that couldn't be done. So he's used that as a strategy to get him to this point, and I think he would have every intention of taking it to that point if he could get there. But the next best alternative will be, and he's tried to do it before, um, call uh, on the opposition. To, to call for a vote of no confidence in the government if they're not su supportive of it. So, so he will. He is in effect saying that this programme motion, if you don't support it, then you don't have confidence in the government, and therefore you need to you need to bring down this government and allow us to go to a general election. It's something that's challenged Jeremy Corbyn on multiple times. There's a sense that the Labour Party don't feel that they have the numbers that they want to go into an election. But the one clear line for Labour has always been through this process right now that they won't go for it until they know there's a guarantee of an extension. This letter that Boris Johnson sent that they're waiting for the European Council leaders to respond to. Um, once that extension is guaranteed, then Labour says that's a game changer uh, and they've indicated that they would go for an election. However, um, we're not quite at that point yet. Um, Anna, um, this is all about sort of getting the numbers together really, isn't it? I mean, do you think this alternative strategy that Boris John uh, Johnson is suggesting, is doing so quite openly in Parliament, is enough to convince those last few MPs to support him in the vote later on tonight. It's really interesting. It is a game changer. We're going to have to look through those numbers very carefully because plenty of MPs do want to see Brexit done and delivered, perhaps not by the end of October, but certainly soon. And the risk of a general election is, of course, a different government, a different withdrawal agreement going back to Brussels, a potentially very lengthy extension or a second referendum. And many MPs heading into a general election will be very concerned about their voters at home, the voters in their constituencies. If you represent an area that voted to leave the EU, how are they going to feel if you were an MP that essentially scuppered a Brexit deal just before the deadline? That is going to be the reaction for some MPs. So I think it's going to get a lot tighter on this programme motion. It's possible now that this decision by Boris Johnson, this statement, very ballsy, may actually end up saving the day for the government. But we'll see. It's going to be close. Uh, yeah, it's going to be, be close. Uh, we, we can't, unfortunately, hear um, Jeremy Corbyn right now. But, um, you know, this 
he is quite often on the back foot. He's quite good at getting on the front foot as well, isn't he? But do you think he could have seen this coming and how do you think he might respond to this? Um, he will have seen it coming. Um, and I think it would be difficult for people to understand how he'll respond to it because his position or Labour Party's position has seemed ambiguous. And one of the successes, I suppose, of their conference a, a month ago, well, maybe less than a month ago now, it seems like a long time ago, was to present a very clear platform that um, you have an election um, and then that after that election, then we could move towards a second referendum, but only after we've had an opportunity to negotiate a better withdrawal agreement ourselves so uh, but but there's been these tensions within the Labour Party that have essentially undermined uh, the credibility uh, of the position of Jeremy Corbyn in as much as there are many on uh, of his senior MPs um, who've wanted him to push for a second referendum sooner to be clearer on that to make that a, a, a defining factor so uh, whether or not Labour now feels um, given Boris Johnson is threatening this, that they would feel comfortable in going into a general election isn't clear because um, they've been taunted by the Prime Minister essentially saying you wouldn't go for it because you don't think you have the numbers and current polling as it stands right now has the Conservatives approximately uh, within a few percentage points, about 10 percentage points ahead of Labour at the moment. So that's not a comfortable position for the leader of the opposition to be in. However, it, it, the way that democracy works in this country, um, and Jeremy Corbyn has said this, it is in the nature of the beast that you will, if there's an opportunity to chat when you're in opposition, if there's an opportunity to challenge the government and bring down the government, you will do that. He's abstained from doing it before, but it would seem impossible for him not to accept that challenge once the guarantee is there of an extension. Uh, you know, this is a very unpredictable process and that's because it's all a negotiation as well uh, we don't really know what's going to happen it feels sometimes until we get to october the 31st that deadline uh, but we're going to try and keep on track for you because it's all about the you know vote later on tonight for many people this timetable because that will define whether or not the deadline is conceivable even we'll bring you all of the updates zane back to you for now all right, Max, thank you so much. Uh, let's head now to Capitol Hill, Washington, where a key witness in the impeachment inquiry is about to begin giving his testimony. The top U.S. diplomat in Ukraine, Bill Taylor, is appearing before Congress. This comes, uh, just as a backdrop for you, this comes as a new CNN poll shows growing support for removing President Donald Trump from office. Suzanne Marveau joins us live now from Capitol Hill. So, Suzanne, as I mentioned, Bill Taylor, obviously a key witness. What sorts of questions do you expect uh, he's going to be asked today? Jose, we actually just saw him enter uh, the building and he is now behind closed doors with those three key committees. The Democrats, uh, first and foremost, I mean, they're looking at somebody who's a career diplomat here who actually came out of retirement to replace Marie Yovanovitch, who was uh, the one who was ousted as the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine under very strange circumstances. What did he know as soon as he got into his position about what was taking place within the State Department, the role of the president, as well as the president's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani? He had multiple conversations, and we saw that memorialized in these text messages uh, that the committee has, in which he uh, essentially is raising the red flags from the very beginning, saying he thinks it's crazy that they're withholding aid from Ukraine for a political cause here, for some sort of gain. So 
he pushes Sunland, uh, he pushes the U.S. Special Envoy, he pushes uh, the EU ambassador, both of them to try to explain uh, on this text message chain what is occurring, what's taking place behind the scenes. And uh, it's almost as if he's trying to create a paper trail for what is occurring. And that is really what the Democrats want to know. Was he actually trying to record and gather evidence for the kinds of things that he was hearing in these telephone conversations he was having uh, with officials and offline? Did he want somebody to respond to him and really just lay all of this out? So that is the first thing that they want to know. Uh, the other thing, of course, is, Zane, you mentioned this, and it really comes at a, a critical time. The president seemingly uh, very frustrated and distraught by this process, tweeting this morning, uh, saying to the Republicans, he says they can impeach the president without due process or fairness or any legal rights. Uh, what all Republicans must uh, remember, what they are witnessing here, a lynching, Zane, highly offensive, racially tinged language here that the president is using. And so you can imagine the type of response this morning that is coming from a number of lawmakers. Uh, we heard from uh, Congressman uh, Clyburn. He's the uh, minority whip, and he is the, the person, uh, he's African-American, who said this is absolutely offensive, uh, really evoking that period in American history where thousands of African-Americans were tortured, hung, and murdered. And so this has only escalated the president becoming more and more uh, desperate in his language. In the meantime, really a great contrast behind closed doors, this methodical process that's taking place as they gather more evidence and testimony. And Zane, again, you brought up that poll, the new CNN poll showing that now for the first time, at least this poll indicating that it is uh, 50% of Americans who now feel as if the president should be impeached and removed from office. One caveat to that, Zane, however, is that this is really strictly along party lines, and we are not seeing any movement in the president's approval rating or even a job performance. Zane. And, and Susan, as you mentioned, just sort of deeply hurtful language there used by the president. Suzanne, you have to leave it there. Uh, you're watching First Move. I will see you on the other side of this short break. Don't go away. Welcome back, everybody. Profit at the Swiss bank UBS slid 16% in the third quarter. A disappointing performance and it, at its investment bank was blamed for the drop. The bank says it'll have to cut high-paying jobs at the division. Matt Egan joins us live now. So, Matt, obviously this has been a very challenging environment for UBS. How much of this can be traced back to low interest rates, negative interest rates as well? That is definitely one factor. You've got all of these unorthodox central bank policies, but you've also got slow economic growth and really weak CEO confidence. And that is combining to create a really challenging environment for banks, even the biggest banks. I mean, listen to what UBS reported today, 16% drop in profits, a 59% decline in investment banking earnings. And they reported sharp declines in M&A and investment banking fees. And they, the bank flat out said they are not satisfied with the performance of the investment bank. And that's why they've announced this restructuring plan that will cost $100 million. It is squarely aimed at the investment bank. And UBS said that it will amount to structural changes in the investment bank, suggesting, yes, job cuts. Now, it's not just the investment bank, though, because UBS reported an 8% decline in lending profits. That is definitely a reflection 
of this upside down world of interest rate policy. You know, recall the ECB went to negative rates back in 2014. The Swiss National Bank went to negative rates in 2015. And now the Federal Reserve is lowering interest rates. It's expected to cut rates later this month for the third time. And, you know, that's really putting a lot of pressure on these banks. Um, UBS and Credit Suisse have actually recently announced plans to charge wealthy clients to hold their money there. That can lead to clients to just take their money out altogether. So it's no wonder why U.S. banks um, have, have come out and said that they do not want to see negative interest rates here. And beyond that, how else are they sort of trying to pass on the costs of negative interest rates to consumers? Yeah, I mean, it's a really difficult situation. Uh, we've seen big banks cut costs um, and that 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 can cause some problems as well. Um, and they've tried to maybe pass along some of the negative interest rates to clients, um, but that can lead to a backlash. Um, one of the bright spots, though, with the UBS report is their their wealth management business does continue to perform well. Uh, the bank announced that its um, total assets under management climbed again last quarter. It hit a record, Zane, $2.5 trillion. All right, Matt Egan, my first there. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, still to come here on First Move, as Disney prepares to launch its streaming service, the CEO of the U.S. telecoms giant Verizon tells me why they're pairing up and why it's good news for Verizon customers. That's next. Welcome back, everybody. U.S. telecoms giant Verizon is teaming up with Disney Plus, giving its customers a free year when the streaming service launches next month. Joining me now is Hans Vesberg, the CEO of Verizon. Hans, thank you so much for being with us. So just tell us how this deal uh, with Disney came about. No, I think that we have been discussing for quite a while. You know, we have a, a consumer base on our wireless, on our Fios and our 5G home, and we want to offer an optionality. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think that Disney Plus is something new in the market and very exciting. So uh, we have a commercial deal with Disney where we're going to actually offer that to our customers for free for 12 months. Okay. And I think uh, it for us is a great deal because we can use our technology, our best network. Mm-hmm. We can use our brand and our distribution to give our customers something extra. Okay. So that's what we're doing. Okay. So why Disney specifically? I mean, why not other streaming services? Will that come later? or just Disney for now? No, Why? this is exclusive with Disney. Okay. Uh, so I think for us, it's it's we want to do really good exclusive. We did one last year on music uh, mm-hmm. together with a very famous company in the Silicon Valley with Apple. Uh, and we thought that uh, those type of models are really beneficial for our customers. Uh, and But we only do it with the best brands and with great content. So it really fits into our strategy where we believe in our network and our brand and our distribution. So how important do you think content is going to be just in terms of distinguishing your company from, for example, our parent company, AT&T, or other uh, telecoms giants as well? I think in general, I mean, a lot in the network is content and it's going to be uploaded and downloaded and uh, viewed all the time. So, of course, content is important. Uh, Our model, which we outlined in the beginning of the year, is that we we actually are partner with the content part, uh, partners and we think that is giving the optionality for our customers and we can focus on the network and on the distribution and uh, sort of our brand and, and we think that's our model. And so just switching gears now to 5G, um, what are some of the biggest challenges in the race towards 5G do you think? 
I think that uh, you're early on in technology. Uh, we we were first with the 5G home solution. Uh, we were first getting a 5G smartphone in the market. We are rolling out market. We're on 13 markets right now. We're committed to 30 markets before year end. I think it's just just to get the gears out and improving them all the time. The software is improving so quickly when you're early stage on mm -hmm. software. And the first launches we did, you know, uh, on 5G smartphone, we maybe have six, seven hundred megabits per second on the phone, mm -hmm. and now we're up to two gig. So it's a constant evolution and hard work to see that our consumers are getting the best experience. So I think that's what we're working with every day to see that uh, we're going to have it to, to all our customers. Um, and talk to us about Verizon Media Group. Obviously, they've uh, changed their brand, especially yep. moving away from Oath. Yep. Um, what's the strategy going forward in terms of boosting ad revenue, competing with the likes of Google and Facebook in that department? I think we have a dual model here. First of all, we have our over-the-top uh, brands, you know, everything we have, who finance, sports, uh, entertainment, and all of that. We think that own content in those are important, but it's only over the top. That's where we believe we can play. And that, of course, is helping us with engagement also on the advertising platform, uh, where we actually combine some six, seven different ad platforms to one. And I think we're, we're, we're doing well with it. And I think that's, uh, that's our model. We're going to find our niche in it. Mm -hmm. There are some guidance in the market, but we think we can find our way of actually uh, getting a lot of traction to our model. And I think the guys, uh, the Verizon Media Group has done a great job the last 12 months to put this all together. Right, and one of the sort of key strategies is, of course, uh, commerce as well yeah. in all of this. Yeah. Uh, all right, um, Hans Vestberg, live for us there. Thank you so much talking to us about the partnership with Disney, with uh, Disney Plus being available for Verizon customers. All right, that's it. You have been watching First Move. I am Zane Asher. Stay with us on CNN. We are live from Abingdon Green following all the latest developments when it comes to Brexit in the UK House of Commons. Connect the World starts after this short break. Don't go away. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.